Welcome to the Well Setting Podcast. This is episode 317. Today is September 7th, 2020. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, today I want to touch on a subject that I've received a lot of questions on, and this is something that's always ongoing. It's one of those topics that someone always has a concern with, but it does go through peaks and troughs, and lately a lot of people have really been concerned, and what I'm talking about is the national debt. And that's understandable in the times we live in right now, because just in the last six months or so, the debt has gone up some 25%. We're now sitting at right around $26.5 trillion. That's a number that in a lot of ways is almost unfathomable, especially if you're as old as me and you remember back when people worried about the debt when it was under a trillion. And so is this rising national debt going to cause the United States to go bankrupt? Are we currently insolvent? Is it just a matter of time? Will the U.S. dollar lose its reserve currency status? Are people going to start selling U.S. Treasury bonds in droves? Ah, you know what? I'm not worried about any of that in the near-term future and frankly, near-term future. I'm just using that as a placeholder because, frankly, I'm not worried about the debt at all. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that I'm not concerned about the wasteful spending and that our country appears to spend like it's run by a bunch of drunk congressmen. But let's be realistic here. It is run by a bunch of drunk congressmen. So the wasteful spending is to be expected. And like I talk about with certain types of companies, particularly some older, stodgy companies, they're pretty stable. Uh, in fact, they're very stable. They pay a dividend. And yet, when you look at the decisions they make and some of the things they do, and you dig into the management structure of the company, you realize that they're really run by absolute idiots. Well, while that is a bad sign for a company, on the other hand, it also goes to show the overall uh, underbelly of the company is so stable. The reason it can have the luxury to be run by complete idiots is because the company generates so much cash and so much profitability. Now, eventually, the chickens do come home to roost on things like that, but again, it's a matter of how long. You can see some companies running for multiple generations. This is easier to visualize, too, maybe if you think about a small business. You know, a business is started by an entrepreneur. He is motivated and he's frugal and all his life he saves and rolls his profits back into the business and he's street savvy. He knows his industry outside and inside and he just creates an amazing small business. And it's so amazing, in fact, and it may even grow from being a small business to a mid-sized business, but his son comes in and or his daughter, you know, whoever, the second generation, they come in and take over for him. They're not as smart as the old man. They're not as street savvy. They're not as frugal. But yet, because of the momentum that the small company had, because of the founder, that profitability carries over and the business remains successful. It continues to grow and grows so much so that the grandchildren now come in. And now we're on the third generation of ownership. They come in, they start to run the business, and they are complete bozos. They're profligate with their spending. They have no discipline. They're totally detached from the reality of the business. In short, they're just a bunch of spoiled brat rich kids with a trust fund. And yet, does the business fail? Well, a lot of times it does. A lot of times it does fail in that third generation. But not always. It can go on depending upon the 
underlying strength of the business, it can still survive poor management for some time into the future. And in a lot of ways, that's where I look at our country. Yeah, there's a lot of problems. Yes, there's a lot of profligate spending, unbelievable amounts of waste. There's absolutely no reason that our deficit and our debt are as high as they are, other than the fact of poor management. But the bottom line on all this is, is that the country can't afford it. Now, again, I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm not saying I'm happy. We don't get the kind of government or the kind of market that we want. We simply have to play the hand that we've been dealt. And in this case, living in the year 2020, this is what we get. This is what we have. And what I'm here to tell you is, is that in spite of all the never-ending negative commentary about how the deficit and the debt are too large and the country's going to go bankrupt and yada, 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 all that stuff, that may happen sometime way out into the future, but I don't see it happening anytime soon and I just don't worry about it. Now, I could digress and go on for, you know, an entire podcast of its own or a series of books to talk about how the government spending system is going to change in the coming years. And that's a matter of how a lot of the services are not going to be paid for directly in cash, but rather in vouchers. And also how a lot of the medical services in particular are not going to be delivered in the way that we've assumed them to be in the past. For example, the use of telemedicine and remote monitoring, that's going to drastically reduce the way that Medicare and Medicaid are delivered in the future and also the way they're funded. It'll drastically, at a fraction of the cost of today's prices, be able to provide health care at or about the same level that we currently do now. The bottom line, though, is that the United States government and the Japanese government and the Chinese government, all these major powers, they all will at some point default on a portion of their debt, but it's going to be the debt that they owe to themselves or that's owed to their central banks. And that doesn't devalue or inflate the current currency, nor does it harm outside parties that are invested in that debt. The reason it doesn't impact inflation is because we're already living through that inflationary cycle. Think of it in terms of student loan debt. Right now, there's, what, one and a half, $1.6 trillion of student loan debt that's probably not going to get paid for. At some point, that student loan debt will probably be written off. And it won't be written off to hurt the banks or the finance companies that have loaned that money, because all that money has already been guaranteed by the federal government. So what will happen is, most likely, the Federal Reserve will come in, and they'll print up, out of thin air, $1.6 or whatever trillion dollars, and they'll put that money in a separate balance sheet fund, and they'll use that money over the next you know, 10 to 20 years to pay down that student loan debt out of that fund. So that means the borrowers will still receive their principal and their interest back. All the people that had student loan debts, that'll be forgiven, so they'll be happy. The borrowers will be happy. The lenders will be happy. And the taxpayers will be happy because, again, they won't be funding it. It's going to be created out of some fake balance sheet on the Federal Reserve. And you're going to say, but that's going to devalue the U.S. dollar. Well, it won't because none of that spending is going to compensate for new education. All the inflation because of that student loan lending has already taken place. The cost of a secondary education over the last 30 years has far outsurpassed the average inflation rate because of this student loan lending. 
And so when we wipe out that debt, it's not going to make future education expensive. It's just going to go to pay for the sins that were already done in the past. That's a type of techniques that are going to be used in the future to monetize this existing debt. Something else to factor into the equation as to why the debt can be as high as it is and things just keep rolling along just as normal. And this goes back to the fact that, you know, as I said, when I was a little kid in the late 1960s, I heard people predicting the fact that the U.S. would go bankrupt or, you know, wouldn't be able to pay its debt. And yet the debt today is orders of magnitude larger than it was back then. One of the reasons that the country can keep up with the debt, actually two of the reasons that the country can keep up with the debt, is because interest rates come down and the overall wealth of the country goes up. And think of this not in terms of the government because it's, it's hard to grasp, but think of it in terms of you as an individual. You know, back when I bought my first house, I was paying a 9% interest rate for the mortgage. Well, today, if I was going to go out and get a mortgage, I'd only be paying, you know, something like 2.6, 2.8%. And so the very fact that the interest rates have come down so substantially over the last 30 years, I could borrow more principal because I have to repay less interest. That's the same with the federal government. They are currently issuing 10-year debt right now, 10-year treasuries, for 0.7%. That means that for every dollar the government borrows for the next 10 years, on an annual basis, the interest is costing them a little more than half a penny. It's literally cheaper to borrow money at these rates than it is to raise taxes. So that's a big factor that's driving up the, the overall debt loads. The other part of that, again, think on a, on a personal finance level, is the country's net worth keeps rising. The country's overall wealth. And that's the same with, with you or with, with me. Think back to 30 years ago when I bought my first house. I not only had to pay a higher interest rate, but my net worth and the amount of money that I earned every year was much smaller than it is today. Right Over the last 30 years, I've grown in wisdom and experience to where I earn a lot more every year and I've also saved and invested that difference wisely. And so my net worth today is much more than it was 30 years ago. And so likewise, if I was going to take out a mortgage today, I could carry a much larger mortgage now than I could 30 years ago because I have so many more assets to use as collateral. The United States is exactly the same way. Forget about all the things you hear about how we're in decline and, and things are so bad. Look around you and look at the productivity of this nation compared to what it was 30 or 40 years ago. We produce more food. We produce a higher dollar's worth of manufactured products. We produce far more services at a higher price than were even conceivable 30 years ago. And that's why the GDP today is so much larger than it was 30 years ago. And that's why the large companies in America are not only so much larger than they used to be, but they're also incredibly more profitable. Look at a company like Apple or Amazon. Compare how much money they make today in profits or how much money they make in revenue versus how many employees they have to have to produce that income. And you look at 30 years ago, the big companies, say like General Motors, they were much smaller in revenue and they were also much larger in people they had to employ to make that revenue. And that creates wealth. And so the point I'm making here is, is that the country's overall wealth continues to rise. And as a result of that, along with those lower interest rates, the country can afford a higher debt load 
just like you as an individual could if you were applying for a mortgage today versus 30 years ago. Hey, along the lines of who owns the national debt and, you know, lately in the headlines you've seen that China's selling off their treasury holdings and, you know, they're going to just get out of the U.S. dollar and it's going to kill the reserve currency of the U.S. government or, you know, put us in some kind of a debt crisis. That's all nonsense. You have to remember that China does not own U.S. foreign reserves or U.S. treasury notes simply because they're benevolent or because they like us. They own them because that's a mechanism they need to use to peg their currency to the U.S. currency so that they can continue to sell us products to the extent that they're reducing their U.S. currency holdings or their U.S. debt holdings. They're doing that, in my opinion, to account for any type of delinking that may happen in the future between our economy and their economy. So it has nothing to do with debt. It has to do with trade. But here's the bottom line on all this. China holds roughly just a little bit more than $1 trillion of U.S. debt. That's less than overall student loan debt. That's less than the debt that's held by a country like Japan, which has a significantly smaller GDP than China's. What have we seen in the last five months, six months with the Federal Reserve? They increased their balance sheet by over $3 trillion. So in a sense, if China, for whatever reason, wanted to divest in U.S. debt, it isn't going to send the world economy or U.S. debt structure into default the Federal Reserve would simply create a trillion dollars, one-third of what they've already created over the last five, six months to deal with the coronavirus, and they'd buy that debt back from China. Nothing would happen. Nothing would change. You would never notice it, just like over the last five or six months, unless you'd read it in the headlines, you would never know that the Federal Reserve balance sheet has expanded by $3 trillion. Another big misconception about the debt is that we're putting all this burden on our grandchildren. You know, saying basically that we're taking away their future because of all the spending that's taking place now. That we're running up these big debts. That's really not true. First off, the average maturity on U.S. debt is less than seven years. So that means that we're not putting this debt off into 30 years in the future. Half of the debt is going to come due in the next seven years. And I don't know about you, but I'm planning on being alive in the next seven years. So that debt load isn't on our grandchildren, it's on me. And like I mentioned previously, even though there is a great deal of debt owed, the interest rates are so inexpensive that it's literally cheaper for the government to borrow the debt to pay it off in the next 7 or 10 years than it is to actually collect it in taxes today. Because they're just paying a, a fraction of a cent on every dollar they borrow. And the other reason that we're not putting all this burden on our grandchildren, that we're actually paying for it today, is these incredibly low interest rates. One of the reasons we're not seeing runaway inflation is because we've seen a collapse in interest rates. So rather than having to pay more in taxes to fund these debts, or to pay more because of inflationary pressures that devalue the purchasing power of your dollar. We're not seeing that take place. What we are seeing take place, and we've seen take place for the last decade or more, is the collapse in interest rates so that anybody that has investable assets are currently paying the price in lost opportunity cost. We can argue what interest rates should be on a 10-year treasury, but most likely it should be in the rate of 4 to 6%. Well, like I mentioned, 10-year treasuries right now are paying 0.7%. And 
And so that differential is a tax. It's a tax just like the devaluation of your currency would be if we were seeing inflation. And so again, we're not putting this burden on our children or grandchildren. Anybody that has excess capital right now, capital that would be put into savings, whether it's retirement savings, investment savings, savings in a bank account or savings in the stock market, any type of investable wealth that you have, you are currently being penalized at probably more than 4% a year. So in the old days, in like the 1970s and 80s, we had runaway inflation and the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar was going down every year. And so you were being penalized for holding U.S. dollars because they would buy less. Today, even though everybody complains about inflation, that's really not what we're seeing. We're seeing the collapse in interest rates, which is the devaluation of the earning power of the U.S. dollar. And again, this is not happening to your grandchildren. It's happening to you today. And if you look at the investable wealth in the United States economy, it's something probably in the order of, I don't know, $50 trillion. But you figure 4% of $50 trillion means that that's $2 trillion in lost interest payments. And again, even if this money is not being invested in bank accounts or in government debt, it's still the opportunity cost that's being lost. And so you may be owning Apple stock or Tesla or something else, and your gains on that are going to be a lot more than 4%. But it's still the differential of what the benchmark safe alternative investment would be. And that is the yield of the 10-year treasury. And the yield of the 10-year treasury is four or more better percent from what it theoretically should be. So that's where I come up with this number. So in effect, again, we're not putting this burden on our grandchildren 30 years in the future. You today are being penalized to the tune of $2 trillion on your investable assets. That's how the government's funding their debt. And so rather than go out and raise taxes 100%, because we know roughly, I think we collect somewhere around U.S. government revenues on taxes or somewhere around $2 trillion, just like they would use inflation as a hidden tax, they're using this collapse in interest rates to put a $2 trillion tax on you without you knowing it. So the bottom line on all this is that there isn't going to be a default anytime soon. The U.S. government isn't going bankrupt. The U.S. dollar as a reserve currency or the global economy isn't going to collapse or go into a credit crisis because of the U.S. dollar or because of the U.S. dollar debt. It's well within levels that we can afford as a country, and it's being funded as we go through things like the hidden tax of unnaturally low interest rates. And the reason the system never defaults and the can always gets kicked down the road is because of the elites, the oligarchs. The people that run the country on and off stage, they change the systems as they go. You know, just before the coronavirus hit, there was all kinds of panic that the overnight repo rate was going to, you know, cause the Federal Reserve to, to go bankrupt or the banking system to collapse. Well, that never happened. And as I mentioned, we've added over $3 trillion onto the Federal Reserve's balance sheet compared to where it was a year ago. And nothing, you know, there's not even been a, uh, a hiccup in the overall functioning of the banking system. It's because the Federal Reserve, who controls the flow of money and controls the economy, they adjust things and they change things. People were saying, they've been saying ever since 2008 that, oh, the Federal Reserve is out of ammunition. They're out of bullets. There's no way they can fight the next recession. Well, they changed their processes. And what happened? Again, they added over $3 trillion to their balance sheet. They pumped that into the economy. They didn't run out of bullets. They can't run out of bullets. They own the printing press. 
The things that they did in March of this year were unprecedented, just like the things they did during the 2008 Great Recession were unprecedented and outside the system. But they did it. They changed the system to keep perpetuating the system. They will always do that. And so the key to all this is, again, I'm not saying I'm happy the way our government's run or that I like the profligate spending or the wastefulness of it. I'm just saying it's the economy we live in. I don't have a choice. And so rather than worry about gloom and doom scenarios or things that aren't going to happen, I worry about increasing my overall wealth and net worth. And the way you do that is by owning appreciating assets. Now, if you're young and you're just starting out in life, the only asset you may own is yourself. And so you educate yourself, you learn skills and abilities to create a market potential for yourself so that you can increase your earning capacity. And then as you keep doing that and reiterating it, you keep earning more and more every year. That's number one, how you get started. Number two, all that income you're earning, you pay yourself first. You're keeping a portion, uh, in some cases a large portion of it, for yourself. And you're reinvesting it not only in you, but in other forms of appreciating assets. That would be real estate, things like purchasing your home. And also investing in other opportunities, for example, like the stock market. And so whether we get inflationary pressures or whether we see the earnings interest rate potential of the U.S. dollar going down, the impact of you is buffered because your wealth is not in U.S. dollars. Your wealth is in the value that you own. The dollars are just how we measure it. You know, I stand a towering five foot eight. Now, I don't know what that is in the metric system, but it's a different number, right? And it would be a different number if, for whatever reason, you changed how long or how short an inch is. But the fact of the matter is, is that I am still the same stature that I am, regardless of how you measure me. The U.S. dollar is simply a measurement of wealth. It's not the wealth itself. And so, even if the U.S. dollar would become inflated and lose its value, or if the earning potential of it continues to go down, your wealth is in assets. Your wealth is in what you can produce. Your wealth is in the value of the appreciating assets that you hold. So if the value of the dollar goes down, your home price is still going to go up. If the value of the dollar goes down, your Apple stock is still going to go up. Poor people think of their wealth in terms of dollars. Rich people think of their wealth in terms of its value. Now, right now, a substantial portion of my portfolio is in cash, but that's a short-term trade. I don't intend to have a bunch of cash in my trading account over the next 10 years. I'm looking for an opportunity to pounce, to buy appreciating assets that are going to be worth more in the next 5 or 10 years, not less. So I'm not looking at holding the U.S. dollar for any length of time. I also own real estate in the form of my home. That portion of my wealth will continue to grow if the purchasing power of the dollar goes down. I own my own business, and I am not compensated by how much I work per hour. I'm compensated by the profitability of my business. And so even with that, if the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar goes down, that directly means that the overall revenue of my company goes up. So I continue to either make the same profit margin or maybe even a larger profit margin. The key here is to not get in a fixed income or don't be working for an hourly wage or a fixed salary. You want to be owning appreciating assets and you want to be in a position where you're compensated through your work 
on an appreciating scale. That, my friend, is how you build wealth. And again, for you guys that are younger, don't get frustrated. You've got time to work and make this happen. But it starts today. Make the changes in your life now so that you're earning more and saving more so that you can wisely invest it in appreciating assets so that every year, year after year, regardless of what happens in the economy or with the value of the U.S. dollar, your net worth continues to grow. Well, hey, as always, thanks for listening. Until the next episode, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.